Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. I'm standing here at the top of the Martello Tower, about six miles south of Dublin, Joyce's Tower as it's now called, and I'm with writer Joseph O'Connor, looking out on the Muglins, back at Killiney Hill, and then the whole swerve and sweep of the bay back to Hoth, a place I'm more familiar with. Joe, did you know this tower before you knew Joyce's texts themselves? Yes, I did. I mean, I grew up around here um, in Dunleary in the late 70s and early 80s and um, the 40 foot which is just below where we're standing now was a great place of resort for the local teenagers on the Saturday night and uh, we would gather down there and dutifully smoke whether or not we wanted to and consume whatever couple of cans of beer someone had brought and listen to music and look out at the ferries heading over to Hollyhead and probably wish that we were on one of them He mounted to the parapet again and gazed out over Dublin Bay, his fair oak-pale hair stirring slightly. God, he said quietly, isn't the sea what algae calls it, a great sweet mother, the snot-green sea, the scrotum-tightening sea, epi oinopa ponton, ah, Daedalus the Greeks. I must teach you. You must read them in the original. Thalata, Thalata, she is our great sweet mother, Come and look. Stephen stood up and went over to the parapet. Leaning on it, he looked down on the water and on the mailboat clearing the harbour mouth of Kingstown. Our mighty mother, Buck Mulligan said. My parents would have known about Joyce. My late mother was a great reader and she loved the sort of the literary ghosts of this neighbourhood. Often when we passed Singh's house in Glasthul, the house where he had lived with his widowed mother, she would stop and she would tell us, you know, look up at that window there on the first floor. That's the room where um, Singh wrote Playboy of the Western World and Yeats would have visited that house. And when we came down here to the waterfront, she'd say, you know, this is where Joyce uh, walked. And isn't it wonderful that it hasn't actually changed that much, that you're actually walking in the footsteps of Joyce. And it was very real to her. She loved reading. Both of my parents did, but my mother had a particular love for books with a hint of sulphur about them. (laughs) She liked Brendan Behan's books and Kate O'Brien's books. If a book had been banned, there was a very good chance that my mother would love it. I think it did, yeah. Yeah. And I, I can remember finding a copy of Joyce's Ulysses in her room. Her bedroom was sort of stacked with books from floor to ceiling. And I found an old copy of the book with a black cover and James Joyce stamped on it in large white letters so that the novel seemed to kind of exude um, a stateliness, in fact, and a plumpness. Stateliness and subversion. (coughs) I'm amazed to hear you say that the 40 foot and the tower here were zones in which young fellas and girls like your contemporaries could explore the unconscious. Because I grew up on the north side and Dollymount Beach was the place where we did that, the scene where Stephen saw the girl waiting. Yeah. But it was a great place for boys and girls to go on a Saturday night and stare out to sea, as you might say. Heavenly God, cried Stephen's soul in an outburst of profane joy. 
He turned away from her suddenly and set off across the strand. His cheeks were aflame, his body was aglow, his limbs were trembling. On and on and on and on he strode, far out over the sands, singing wildly to the sea, crying to greet the advent of the life that had cried to him. There is something about the sea, as Joyce says, our great mother, you know, in the opening chapter of Ulysses, and something about the sea that draws people to it. And there was something about the kind of seedy glamour of living in a port town, you know, a town with a bit of dirt under its fingernails. And Dunleary, you know, in the Victorian age had been a prosperous place, a place where the civil servants and the administrators of colonial power made their homes. But by the time of my childhood, it was a kind of little skegness, you know, full of <laughs> chip shops and cheap hotels and memories of its former grandeur. So this is where we came and we'd listen to music. And oddly, you know, some of the punk bands that were getting going in Dublin at that time, they perhaps unconsciously in some cases had an awareness of Joyce and of the whole tradition, the band mm. that all of my friends love more than any other, the Radiators from, from Space, Space yes. um, their album Night Town, yeah. um, really it almost was as though Stephen Dedalus had found um, a Fender Telecaster in some junk shop on the Keys and plugged in. There's a song on a Kitty Ricketts, yeah. um, named after a character who appears very briefly in Ulysses. So Joyce was in the air, you know, yeah. he was sort of part of the sea breezes of this place. He had a fantasy about being a musical performer in seaside places like Skegness and so on, and perhaps of picking up a few girls en route. Yeah. Um, is that part of the whole tradition? I mean, like music is a huge driver of the narrative in Joyce's books, yeah. and I know it is in yours too, particularly yeah. the ballad form. Yeah, well, it's one of the wonderful pleasures of Joyce, I think. You know, he wanted to be a musician himself, like like a strange number of novelists. <laughs> yeah. Just looking around here, you know, out to sea, and of course all those mail boats took people away in the kind of flight you're describing. But back in at the land, I'm looking at Killiney, at Dawkey, back to Don Leary, across to Clontarf, Killester. It often strikes me that Dublin is not so much a city with a central intelligence behind its planning, but rather an interesting collection of villages mm -hmm. that grew into the form of what is called a city. And if you think of Ulysses also, it, it's, it's not a novel in any known sense. It's a collection of micro-narratives that get joined up into yeah. this amazing extended narrative. Yeah. Is there some link between you know, the newness of Joyce's form and the weirdness of Dublin as a city? I think there is. I think it's impossible to imagine it being, to, to imagine Ulysses being written about any other European city. I mean, most European cities, and certainly all American cities, had some notion of planning right from the start. But I think Dublin's, Dublin's nature as a collection of localities is something that does shape um, Ulysses. I mean, my grandparents, for example, who were from Francis Street in the Liberties, um, they would have regarded even other parts of the city as foreign. I mean, my, mm. my grandmother, when she, when she said town, mm. when she said the city, she meant the north inner city. She, she meant Mary Street and Capel Street and places like that, uh, which really she did regard as being slightly foreign. 
Um, the, the Liberty certainly was a place that had its own set of fealties and ethics and negotiations. And distinct, and distinct accent to uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I hear Imelda May hmm. speaking now, she reminds me of how my my aunts would have spoken, you know, hmm. and she even looks, she has the same sort of glamour that my beautiful aunts had in photographs of them that I see from the 1940s and 50s. So I think it does seep yeah. into Ulysses, and it's very hard to know if that approach could be used by any novelist. Yeah, now. I believe, Joel, you've written a riff called Three Minute Ulysses, mm. and this is for professors who specialise in Proust and have never had the courage to open the book. Exactly. No, it's uh, people sometimes find Ulysses intimidating because of its uh, size and its reputation. Uh, so this is the three-minute version. James Joyce, yes. Bloomsday, yes. And the people who like him, they gather to bless and come mess. And indeed they, yes, I confess. And he wrote in the stream of consciousness. Yes, where you don't say your woman did this and then left. Or your man moseys in and says he to the room. But Bloom, that's the hero. You're inside his head and you're sailing the seas of his marital bed or wherever you're led by the thoughts that go drifting and shifting in his yes as he saunters the city of yes. And he glancing at the motts and he getting the hots and he looking at the sky with his roving eye-eye and he bumps into neighbours performing his labours all on a Dublin days and the words like birds confetti fall of language and the slang and the yes and the porter in the taps and the sandy cove talk and the sandy mount walk and the sandwich and a jar in Davy Burns bar and his memories mingle and jingle in his pocket and tinkle old songs of the yes and the day does be boiling like blazes yes and the bells and the smells and the apples and the chapels and the hope and the sweet lemon soap and Stephen who don't be believing in God but here at the end he encounters a friend in the kips where the lips of the ladies of the night do be calling like summertime sirens. And what's the book about? Well, itself, I suppose, and yourself and myself and herself down the road, all you lads and all you lasses, you lisses, his missus. See, she is called Molly, at home in her bed, and there's thoughts in her head, and some of them shrewd, and some of them rude, and some of them flirty, and some downright, yes, and food for the forehead in a novel he borrowed called Sweets of Sin or something. Soliloquy, yes beautiful word, like solitary and eloquent got married. Yes, funny thought. Yes, if words could fall in love. Well, think of the children they'd have. Yes, like Nora and Jimmy, their wedding so jolly. Kind of a silly. Yes, symmetry. Yes, cemetery. Paddy Dignam dead. And up to Glasnevin and maybe to heaven and Leopold thinking his thoughts. Yes, in his carriage. Yes, thinking of his marriage. And the city roils around him, the noise and the boys. And they sell in the papers and thinking up capers and gougers and gutties and bantams and phantoms and moon fruit and mirth and mother's given birth and bloom such a darling old dear well it's many a year since sweet baby James and his town has grown up to a right old Hames for lately there's a sadness and a madness in the yes and they buggered us up they're a pack of greedy yes and I'd give them a route up the yes for themselves and yes there's a mess there's no point in denial but James would remind you through trouble and trial there's things to be proud of still yes him yes more the people we love or a novel you read or a red weathered moon or something was said in your kitchen molly keen column toe bean doyle binchy banville sean ogo halpine or strolling in the summer through stephen's green in the yes of the yes of the yes james joyce yes that's what it means a book worth a look for the secret it tells we can walk from the tomb and we still might bloom for the very last word will be yes well we can see the sweep of the cityscape behind us, but perhaps we should 
go down the treacherous steps now into the zones of the unconscious in the darkness below us in the tower. Well, we've come down a very narrow winding stair now to what's called the round room, which is really the central space in Joyce's tower, the room in which uh, Haynes and Buck Mulligan and Stephen live and sleep. Um, it's hard to see out of it because what windows there are to my right are slanted. They're letting in a bit of light, but you can't see anything except the white brick. On my left, there is an opening which gives you a very curtailed view of Dublin, but this is where the opening chapter of Ulysses was set. Joe, um, should people in their teens or 20s even be allowed to read James Joyce? Well, I think they should be allowed and encouraged to read Dubliners, which is his most perfect book, uh, in my view. It's Dubliners, I think, just has so much to teach us, you know, as, as readers and as writers. It's the one book of Joyce where really nothing is wasted nothing is italicized that doesn't need to be that spirit which he described as you know as scrupulous meanness uh, just informs every line but it's meanness in the sense of exactitude it's precision you know these wonderful sentences that just unfurl one after the other and they flutter briefly and are taken away before you get too used to them the book just has such a wonderful sense of tact what what to leave out people always talk about um, the dead the final story in dubliners as one of the greatest stories ever written in the language as it is but i i love so many of the other stories too whenever i teach writing which i try to do from time to time i always work with the the story eveline uh, mm. one of the shortest stories in the collection a beautiful story that you feel was very carefully and tastefully edited to allow the absences um, to become presences. And I think Dubliners really is a book about people who aren't there. That was a long time ago. She and her brothers and sisters were all grown up. Her mother was dead. Tizzy Dunn was dead too, and the waters had gone back to England. Everything changes. Now she was going to go away like the others, to leave her home. Home. She looked round the room, reviewing all its familiar objects, which she had dusted once a week for so many years, wondering where on earth all the dust came from. Perhaps she would never see again those familiar objects from which she had never dreamed of being divided. And yet, during all those years, she had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall above the broken harmonium, beside the coloured print of the promises made to Blessed Margaret Mary Alacock. He had been a school friend of her father. Whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor, her father used to pass it with a casual word. He's in Melbourne now. And it's such a, a masterpiece of concision and an object lesson in what to leave out. He comes into the stories very late. He leaves all of the stories apart from the dead very early. Um, he teaches you that less is more. He teaches you that when you step back from a scene, you actually reveal uh, more of what's going on in it. Um, it's his most accessible book, and therefore, by that measure, his, his most beautiful. So it um, combines the greatness of being accessible with also being a kind of writer's writer book. Yes, I think it does. 
And I mean, I think it was a great thing that this year, um, thanks to Dublin City Library's uh, One City, One Book promotion, mm. that Joyce's Dubliners was a number one bestseller. You yes, know? yes. Um, it was a really fantastic thing. Um, you know, I saw people reading it on the bus and yeah. on the dart and all of that. It was fantastic. The way they were reading Ghostlight. Uh, well, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, obviously there are Dublin-esque things in Joyce that a writer like you might pick up on particularly when you're trying to recreate the world of J.M. Singh and Molly yeah. Allgood, mm. a, a world contemporary to Joyce's own. Um, and of course, you have a lovely Molly soliloquy, I in do. effect, yeah. at the end of your own book. Was, was Joyce any help in doing that? Yes. I mean, when I started writing Ghostlight, which is, most of which is set in the 1950s in London, it's Molly Allgood, Singh's former lover, uh, and now as an old woman, uh, looking back on her, this strange and lovely courtship with, with Singh. But the parts set in Dublin are sort of 1903, 1904. And I remember sitting in my office late one night, actually thinking to myself, I wonder if anyone's ever written a book about what Dublin was like in 1904, and suddenly realizing, actually, yes, they have, <laughs> and no one's ever going to write a better one. So, so the Dublin in that book um, tries to be open about the fact that it's it's borrowing from from that city of sort of crusty elegance uh, and faded grandeur and squalor um, that Joyce writes about in uh, in Ulysses and in the portrait. I mean, among Molly's memories, my Molly, um, there are incidents which she has convinced herself have happened to her. She. Uh, but they're actually from the pages of Joyce. She remembers as an old woman going out to Glasthool to see Singh's mother, and as she passes through Sydney Parade Station, the train is delayed because a woman has thrown herself onto the tracks. And, of course, this didn't happen. Molly is actually remembering a moment from a painful case, the Joyce short story. When he reached his house, he went up at once to his bedroom and, taking the paper from his pocket, read the paragraph again by the failing light of the window. He read it not aloud, but moving his lips as a priest does when he reads the prayers secreto. This was the paragraph. Death of a lady at Sydney Parade, a painful case. Today at the City of Dublin Hospital, the deputy coroner, in the absence of Mr. Leverett, held an inquest on the body of Mrs. Emily Sinico, aged 43 years, who was killed at Sydney Parade Station yesterday evening. The evidence showed that the deceased lady, while attempting to cross the line, was knocked down by the engine of the 10 o'clock slow train from Kingstown, thereby sustaining injuries of the head and right side, which led to her death. So, so I, I tried just to sort of seed in little references to Dubliners and to Ulysses as a way of saying thank you. But there's no, nobody can ever improve on um, that depiction of, of Dublin. Bor the great Borges said that we finally came to Dublin for the Bloomsday in 1982. Um, he was blind and he, he said in his speech that he, he felt he knew Dublin anyway. He, he could walk around the streets of Dublin because of because of Ulysses, and we're all able to do that. Um, I sometimes think Ulysses is, is, is really a book for middle-aged people, because when you come to it again in your late 30s or your 40s, and you re-encounter the man hmm. who you didn't understand when you were 18, Leopold Bloom, 
and you, and you see again this wonderful, generous, uh, curious man. It's something you've written about yourself, but it's something that's so touching about him that Bloom loves the world. He loves imagining what it would be like to be other. Hmm. He fantasizes what it would be like to be a woman, what it would be like to be a child, the way blind people feel. Hmm. The blind stripling tapped the curbstone and went on his way, drawing his cane back, feeling again. Mr. Bloom walked behind the eyeless feet, a flat-cut suit of herringbone tweed. Poor young fellow. How on earth did he know that van was there? Must have felt it. See things in their foreheads, perhaps. A kind of sense of volume. Weight. Would he feel it if something was removed? Feel a gap? Queer idea of Dublin he must have, tapping his way round by the stones. Bloom's life really has not worked out the way he thought it would. His marriage is severely compromised, and he suffered the grief of the death of his son. But he manages heroically to find something worth loving in the world, to reach an accommodation with the world. And it's maybe, maybe only language could express that, you know, the most beautiful thing we've ever made. The mm. reason that our species has developed this thing, which no other animal really has, is just for an experience of empathy. And I, I, I think that's what Bloom wants through the course of that day. He just wants to know what it would be like to be somebody else. And of mm. course, it's wonderful because that's why we go to fiction. Mm. That's what fiction is, whether we're reading John Banville or Maeve Binchy or Roddy Doyle or whatever it is, high literary fiction or, you know, a page turner by the swimming pool on your holidays, there seems to be something very deep in us that wants to know what it's like to be somebody else. And the miracle of it is that when it works, the experience of fiction, we come back to ourselves with a greater understanding of what it's like to be us. It's also that Ulysses Precisely, you understand when you're older that its difficulty is absolutely part of it. Without its difficulty, it would be nothing. The experience of coming to know Ulysses is actually very like coming to know a person. It's a bit like being married, I think. Mm. You know, you become infatuated with Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist. But with Ulysses, it's a kind of marital affection that you have for it. There are times when it's joyful. There are times when it's moving. There are times when it's consoling. Ulysses is a wonderful companion. There are times when Ulysses is very sexy and it's very exciting. And there are moments when it frustrates you and you don't understand it. And in the core, at the, the center of Ulysses, where we wander into Nighttown, we're wandering into that dark world that you really have to try hard to meet halfway. Hmm. In the same way that all of us have a kind of night town in us. And yeah. it's, it's Joyce's genius to recognise that. Can, can, I, I, I've always been fascinated by that element in Bloom's character, that he is both the most documented character, perhaps in the history of literature, yeah. but also, finally, unknowable, yeah, undecodable. Now, I, and I've wondered, I mean, that's the challenge for the reader, but isn't it probably true that that was also true for Joyce, that part of his greatness in creating, in inventing, because he is the one truly invented character in that book, is that um, in the end, as an author, he had to admit 
that his character that he had created had secret rooms he could never enter. Well, that's the brilliance of the book. And again, you know, you don't understand that. When you're young, you want to go into every room, you know. Mm. And Dubliners kind of succeeds at taking you into, into every room as much as uh, a fictional experience can. But I think that the tact of the final admission that there are parts of Bloom that can't be known is one of the things that makes the book very touching and very truthful. And it's also, of course, it's, it's fantastic beauty. There's a kind of, even a theology to, to, mm. to Ulysses. I mean, it's really remarkable for such a splendidly irreligious figure who, as Neil Jordan wrote about Joyce recently, that he's, he's no interest in the afterlife or anything like that. He loves the world. Um, but the moment near the end of Molly Bloom's soliloquy where she talks about the beauty of the fields and the cows and nature and the wheat and the barley growing and even the ditches, she says, the, the, the primroses and the violets grow out of the ditches. And as for the people who call themselves atheists, she says, I wouldn't give a snap of my fingers for all their learning. And it's, it's so touching and so moving that the book says, look, there are things even in this broken, damaged, difficult to negotiate world that are worth loving. I love flowers. I'd love to have the whole place swimming in roses. God of heaven, there's nothing like nature. The wild mountains, then the sea and the waves rushing, then the beautiful country with fields of oats and wheat and all kinds of things and all the fine cattle going about that would do your heart good to see. Rivers and lakes and flowers, all sorts of shapes and smells and colours springing up even out of the ditches. Primroses and violets, nature it is. As for them saying there's no God, I wouldn't give a snap of my two fingers for all their learning. Why don't they go and create something, I often asked him. Atheists or whatever they call themselves, go and wash the cobbles off themselves first. Then they go howling for the priest and they dying and why? Why? Because they're afraid of hell on account of their bad conscience. Ah, yes, I know them well. Who was the first person in the universe before there was anybody that made it all? Who? Ah, that they don't know. Neither do I. So there you are. They might as well try to stop the sun from rising tomorrow. Joyce is like Dickens, really. He says there's nothing that language can't do. Absolutely nothing. It can explode like fireworks and it can murmur like chamber music. And that if you want to write a story, just open the window and look out. Look at what is in front of you. Open the window and the stories will fly to you like the birds. And you, 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 know, you capture them and you try and describe them. So he, he gives you that. And he also gives you, I suppose, the thing that, that the great Beckett doesn't, I think. That, he, that he's on the side of life. You know, he's 50-50 sometimes, but ultimately he comes down on the side of of life and generosity. I think it's too often pointed out that Ulysses ends with the word yes. I mean, it does, but it's a yes that's very intensively qualified by everything that has happened in the book up to that point. It really ends with a sort of maybe, you know? It's a maybe rather than a yes. And, you know, for a writer, I think that's that's sometimes enough. He gives you a sense that um, to live just once might be miracle enough. And that's a wonderful thing to have done with your life. Yeah. 
What do you think Joyce would make of Dublin and Ireland now, and indeed of the Disney world that has been created around his name? Um, well, the, the, the whole thing about Bloomsday and, and Joyce as celebrity, I, I, I mean, I'd love to say that he would be above it all and he would shun the whole thing, but I don't know if any writer really would. I think he'd be curious about Bloomsday and he'd go along and he'd listen to the speeches and he'd probably accept being made a free man of Dublin and he'd, he'd shake David Norris by the hand and he'd have a drink afterwards and then I think he'd go home. I, th I, I, think, I think he um, would be curious about it and then would leave it behind. I really have a sense of him as being a very private man. His favourite photograph of himself, the only one he said he could ever bear to look at, um, is a picture of him with his back to the to the camera. And I, I think of him standing on Dunleary Pier at the end of Portrait of the Artist as a young man. This crazily uh, heroic youth facing out into the hurricanes of the world um, with nothing except silence, exile, and cunning. April 16. Away! Away! The spell of arms and voices, the white arms of roads, their promise of close embraces, and the black arms of tall ships that stand against the moon, their tale of distant nations. They are held out to say, We are alone. Come! And the voices say with them, We are your kinsmen and the air is thick with their company as they call to me, their kinsmen, making ready to go, shaking the wings of their exultant and terrible youth. April 26. Mother is putting my new second-hand clothes in order. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. Amen. So be it. Welcome, O oh life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. And if you don't raise a cheer, even for this rather miserable and hard-to-like youth as he, as he does that, I think it can only be because you don't want to recognise your own youthful self or that you were never young yourself. James Joyce and Me was presented by Declan Kybird and the producer was Bernadette Comerford. Sound supervision was by Tom Norton. Special thanks to Robert Nicholson, curator of the museum at the Joyce Tower in Sandy Cove, for his helpfulness in the recording of the programme. The readings were by Barry McGovern and the programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.